Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad you had with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Hey, doing, Dave? doing great, Matt. Having some interesting February uh, San Antonio weather. On Monday, it was 85. Yep. Today, it's 32. Tomorrow, 70. And then the next day, 32. So, okay. <laughs> different, uh, different weather patterns coming through here. But yeah, uh, that's that's usually like high to low, but day to day, that's, that's kind of wild. Yeah. Well, we have to apologize to our listeners for missing last week. Uh, we were we were too busy celebrating our Super Bowl picks, uh, having gotten the Rams right. Um, but I got to tell you, I, you know, I it it's uh, gave me another good reason not to be a better. Um, so my prediction was twenty eight twenty one, and of course the final score was twenty three twenty, which you know not bad. I mean that's like a ninetieth percentile pick, I would say something like that. Right. But if I was betting, I would have lost on the point spread and on the over under. <laughs> so, you know, you, uh, you, you, you bet at your own risk is I think exactly. the message there, but I was proud of the fact that I picked Cooper cup to get the MVP with a second touchdown to win the game at the end. I thought you nailed it though, with your assessment of the game, uh, lo- lower scoring than we thought both defenses played pretty well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, the Rams were kind of in line to win and got a whole bunch of high priced players and, uh, and, finish the job. So another good game, a good, good uh, playoff for the NFL. Um, so. Yeah. That, I mean, the whole playoffs were really incredible other than the first weekend, so many close games, very compelling outcomes and uh, yeah, great storylines. So we're not going to predict next year's champion just yet or, or 2024, 2025. Let, let things settle a little bit, but uh, stay tuned, right? Because we're, we're on a pretty good hot streak here. That's right. So last night, uh, you accidentally called me and it, you know, it sounded like you were having some big uh, Tuesday celebration there in Geneva, but I guess it was a, a girls basketball game. Yeah. We, we had a, uh, had the music playing in the background and uh, I, I saw that on my phone that I called you by accident and uh, <laughs> you probably want, were wondering, you know, what had happened to me, whether I'd been captured by uh, some crew of uh, 18 year olds, but yeah, uh, they won the playoff game. So now they're, uh, one game game removed from the state. If they win, uh, I think on Saturday, they'll then play in the state tournament the following Saturday, which is exciting wow. for them. So, yeah, that's great. All right, well, let's turn to Aristotle. We're moving along in Book Five, up to chapters eight and nine. Yeah, so the um, two chapters eight and nine deal with two topics connected to one another. In Chapter Eight, Aristotle goes through the general means of preserving constitutions. And then in chapter nine, he talks about uh, what I'll call the ruling qualities and how these ruling qualities lead to the preservation of constitutions. So uh, what is the general way that you can uh, prevent there being a regime regime change or preserve the, the constitution that you have? And then um, secondly, 
you know, what type of leader do you need and how can you, how can that help in the preservation of a constitution? So uh, you may have found more or less uh, examples of means to preserve constitutions, but I think, Matt, that I was able to list uh, at least seven ways in which you can preserve a constitution. So maybe I'll go through um, each of these uh, and then we'll say a few words about them and then, you know, whether or not they still apply uh, today. So first great means of preserving a constitution, according to Aristotle, is if the spirit of obedience to the law is present within a community. And he says that this has to be true even in small matters, so that um, in, in how you carry yourself, you have a spirit that's in obedience to the law. And you think of an example, um, I know this is, you know, many a college campus uh, or a high school campus uh, suffers from the tragedy of the commons, right? Where you see kind of garbage pile up, you know, this, that, and the other, you know, a, a, a can left here, you know, piece of paper left there. Uh, so that you go a couple days with that and you could have a campus that was a, a total mess. So here Aristotle would say, you know, the type of habit in which you throw away your garbage into the recycling plan or whatever it may be, um, that produces um, kind of a, something within you and others where the expectation is that you're always going to do the right thing, even when other people aren't looking. What do you make of that? Idea. Yeah, well, I think about the broken windows thesis of uh, James Q. Wilson and the implementation of that in New York City with Rudy Giuliani and, and others in the early 90s. And, and the idea was, you know, that if you start enforcing laws against vagrancy or, um, you know, against property destruction that are kind of minor things, it seems like, then you create a culture of obedience that will affect ultimately a more serious crime. And you know, whether that was the solution or there were other causes that were in play, probably a combination of things. You had a dramatic, dramatic turnaround in in the safety of New York City uh, over the course of the 1990s. And not just New York City, as, as some of those methods moved out, of course, you know, big city crime went down a lot uh, for, for decades. And it's only in the last couple of years it's begun to go back up. And so, you know, if you go to New York City today, you begin to see some of the signs that some of these small violations of the law are being ignored. And I think there's an effort with the new mayor coming in to go back to some of those earlier, more successful methods. But I think that's that's a good illustration of how, as you're saying, that habit of, of obedience uh, and and the the fact that people care, right? The, the message that people care about having an orderly community gets transferred to people that either say, okay, you know, they don't care. So, you know, I, I can go and, and do my thing and, and cause trouble more broadly, or they do, and I better be careful because there's obviously somebody watching and, and concerned about this community. Yeah, and then that leads to his second bit of advice on how to preserve constitutions. You can't rely upon political device or a public relations campaign. You can't fake your way into preserving a constitution. You actually have to do the things that actually guard against the change that is harmful. And I mean, you go back to New York, right? You you could try to have a public relations campaign. This is New York, of course, right? The, the center of public relations campaigns. But in reality, the, the effort to deceive people through a campaign like that is not going to overcome the reality on the streets, what you see in the subway, et cetera, correct? Right. And I, I think about just the way that the administration, at least at this point, has tried to manage the inflation concerns of people, you know, sort of, well, it's not really that bad or it's temporary. 
and people are looking at the gas pump and they're saying, nope, <laughs> it's pretty serious. Or they're trying to buy a home and they're looking at the prices going up or interest rates rising. And, you know, I mean, the, like, these are kind of things that you can't um, spin your way out of because they're right in front of people in their everyday uh, practical living. Here goes to number three, that um, rulers uh, in trying to preserve a constitution should treat one another and their fellow citizen in a spirit of equality. It seems like all of these bits of advice are connected to one another. You want to have a spirit that's obedient to the law. Uh, you want to not deceive people. And then here, thirdly, that you want to treat one another uh, and your fellow citizens in the spirit of equality. So if there's someone who's disenfranchised, um, if there's someone who's uh, not part of, of the ruling powers, you don't treat them as the other. Right? You want to be welcoming and liberal to all. Yeah, that's a big point in the next chapter as well, that it's, it's critically important for oligarchs not to mistreat the many and for Democrats not to mistreat the few. You know, that's the orientation of the regime, maybe, but you want to maintain a stable order and actually maintain your position of power and authority. You do it with moderation, not with partisanship. And this leads, I think, to the fourth bit of advice that he gives us, that it's better to have short tenure in office. So to not have individuals who are serving in office for a long time who may uh, get powerful and who may forget those who they lead uh, or not be willing to treat another uh, as their equal. Uh, the tenure in the office uh, produces a certain sheltering uh, from reality. So the shorter the tenure, Aristotle says, the better in most constitutions. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a you know mixed blessing there, right? There's, there's advantages to short terms in office. But I think one of the ways that you overcome the danger of long tenure in office is by having regular elections. So is it a bad thing to have individuals serve multiple Senate terms or you know a handful of terms in the House or two terms as president? Not necessarily, but you need to have that periodic accountability. It needs to be real accountability. So this is one of the dangers in our day is that because of gerrymandering, there's so many uncompetitive House districts, there really isn't that accountability every two years, maybe in a primary but not in the general election. It's difficult to actually hold the office holder accountable in a way that is intended by those frequent elections. So I think, you know, there, there is benefits to experience. And certainly we have people that are wise and prudent in their judgments. You don't want to just throw them out of office um, for no good reason, but it is important that there be that measure of accountability that returns them to the people that aligns their interest with their duty and encourages responsibility on their part. Yeah, and I mean, that's tied to, um, I think, what he'd argue is the fifth, sixth, and seventh bits of advice here on preserving constitutions. It all has to do with the relationship between holding office and gaining for oneself uh, by the holding of office. So um, fifthly, he argues that you ought to always be taking into account kind of general economic trends. Here you mentioned inflation. So what has inflation done over the course of the last 25 years to the general well-being of the middle-class worker, right? That, that, that would be a question I think that Aristotle would want us to consider. So are wages increasing at a rate with the economy, or does the middle-class find itself in a more difficult position over the course of time? And I mean, here he's not just talking about the middle-class, but the, the wealthy, uh, the poor, you always want to be um, calibrating uh, where things are um, on a yearly census basis. So uh, it's kind of interesting here that he goes into a discussion of economics because, of course, 
many a revolution, right, has begun, right, over a struggle over property or labor, et cetera, correct? Yeah, certainly we see that even going back to early American history, Shays' Rebellion uh, was a great catalyst for the Constitutional Convention and the concerns about uh, debtors versus creditors that were that were tied up in that. And of course, many, many other examples of that over the course of our history. So six and seven tied to this. Uh, six, make sure that um, an office holder never has too much power, whether that power is derived from friends or money. And then seventh, uh, try to make sure that a state, he writes, is administered and so regulated by law that its magistrates cannot possibly make money. That's kind of a, a great irony, right? When you look at Washington, D.C. and its surrounding zip codes, uh, there's a lot of good money uh, to be made <laughs> outside uh, of the Beltway. Uh, and it shows itself in you know, many of these um, cities uh, that average housing prices are 1.2, 1.5 million with, with large um, uh, government supplied retirements, et cetera, where uh, people have done quite well for themselves, uh, not simply by uh, being a magistrate, but by serving the administrative state uh, over the last 50, 100 years as it's grown. Right, I think that's the challenge in our time. You don't really get a great salary by being a member of Congress, right? a couple hundred thousand dollars, uh, many, many p- folks are, are making more than that in the various professions. And a lot of the people that are in office would be making more than that if they were in, in private business. Uh, but when you leave office, you have all these connections, lobbying opportunities. You've got the corporate boards, other chances for easy money as a speaker or things of this sort. And so there's a real opportunity to leverage that position for for power and like you're saying to be tied into the administrative state and kind of um, seeking your fortune through the successes of of those government institutions that are that are so central in washington and around a number of the more prominent state capitals as well so yeah i mean i think there's a, a general principle here you know in the united states you don't get rich in office per se from from holding office but, you know, you think about Hunter Biden, right? You think about the ways that families leverage their connections sometimes uh, in ways that might be might be legal, um, but maybe not ethical. And just kind of the, the, the general sense that if you're well connected with the administration, with the regime, that you're likely to do well. And that will show up in terms of college admissions that might show up in terms of other opportunities for relatives and those connected to you. And, and those that are favorable to the regime, even if they're not office holders, seem to do pretty well also. So I think there's kind of a, a general principle here that's broader than just what the salary is of an office holder that, that is a matter of concern in our day, that the ruling class uh, uses positions of authority to benefit themselves and to sort of reproduce themselves uh, generation by generation. Yeah, and I think that general spirit feeds into the argument that he's making in this chapter, and that is that the best way to preserve a regime, a constitution, is if that constitution practices equality rightly understood, understands justice as equality rightly understood, and to the degree that it doesn't, and this has been a common theme throughout the politics, uh, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have an, an unhealthy a divide um, find its way into a political community that that leads to a revolution and and perhaps 
the dissolution of, of whatever that uh, political community is. Well, so moving on to uh, chapter nine uh, of book five, continuing on with this theme of preserving constitutions, but, but now the subject is, well, what are the qualities of the ruler? Uh, what are the qualities of the individuals who hold the highest offices? So he lists three, and they're really clear qualities that uh, rulers ought to have. First, loyalty to the established constitution. So this office holder should be loyal. Second, the greatest administrative capacity. So secondly, this, this individual ought to have skill. And then thirdly, virtue and justice of the kind proper to each form of government. And this isn't the same, he says, in all governments. The quality of justice differs for different regimes, but that office holder must have a virtue and a justice that is in alignment with that regime. So loyalty, skill, and virtue. What do you make of these three? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really important combination. And this is actually a, a chapter that I used in my dissertation in evaluating the statesmen of the second generation, the leaders after the revolutionary leaders and before Lincoln, and looking at how they failed uh, in significant ways to measure up to, to both Lincoln on the one end and, and the founders on the other. And it was really in these particular qualities that, that you could see them as, as falling short. Uh, you know, so as, as Aristotle points out in the chapter, if you have two but not the other, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. so, so being loyal, having the right sense of justice and virtue, but not having the capacity to, to judge prudently the right measure, right, the means and ends, you know, you, you fail anyway, right, despite your best of intentions. And if you have all the qualities of prudence and you have virtue, but you don't actually love this regime, then those qualities will lead you to transform the regime into something else. And, and rather than preserving in the regime, you end up being a revolutionary, whether you intend that or not. And so you can work through the different combinations here, and you see uh, the fact that all three of these really have to come together for a leader to accomplish the purpose that Aristotle is laying out. Now, maybe you don't need to preserve the regime. Right? Maybe the regime is not worthy of being preserved, and that's a different question. But if, if we're taking up the question of how do you maintain a regime over time, without these three qualities coming together in the political leaders, it's unlikely to happen. Yeah, and it's interesting that that same dissertation that you write on American history in between the founding and the Civil War uh, was like the dissertation I wrote about uh, the rise and decline of, of Athens yeah. uh, as a regime on the same principle that you know, here you have a, a regime that's worthy, that's defined well in Pericles' funeral oration, and that is ordered well by Pericles, who in his own words um, has knowledge, has the ability to communicate that knowledge, but most importantly, loves Athens. But what comes after uh, Pericles, uh, after he dies? Uh, a set of rulers who uh, lack uh, a combination uh, of these skills, which brings us to the point, well, what do you do in, in a situation where um, you have to make a choice between uh, a good general, this is an example he uses, a good general who's a bad man uh, and not a friend to the Constitution, or another man who's loyal and just but doesn't have the administrative capacity. And here he says something quite interesting, right, that the rule as to how you judge is based upon the rarer quality. So if it's more difficult in that situation to be a good general and to marshal your troops, 
you'll probably take the bad man, right, over the good man who has no ability on the battlefield. Interesting comments, huh? Yeah, and you wonder how well that that works out historically. Right? You think about your own example, um, you know, somebody who's a, a, a great military commander for the Athenian forces, but but doesn't love the regime. You know, does does that military victory actually redound to the good of the regime, uh, or does it redound to the good of of the commander? Right. Well, of course, you're mentioning Alcibiades here, and I think it's it's interesting, right? Is the fate of the regime already been determined by that point? Uh, because it's produced a person like Alcibiades that doesn't that is not loyal to it or sees himself uh, above it. So anyway, I, I think that. Um, you know, as he moves on here and he talks about these uh, different qualities, um, I think that one of the things that's important to remember and is to go back to this distinction between what the preserving principle is within one regime and what it is within another regime. So all of the advice that he is giving us here uh, is really centered on an application that's particular to a regime. And this kind of leads to, his, I think, his most important point here, because it's about rule, but it's also about the preservation of a political community. He writes, of all the things which I have mentioned, that which most contributes to the permanence of constitutions is the adaptation of education to the form of government. And yet in our own day, this principle is universally neglected. The best laws though sanctioned by every citizen of the state, will be of no avail unless the young are trained by habit and education in the spirit of the Constitution. A really valuable advice here in his day and, and ours, you will not have good rulers unless you have a good educational system. And that educational system is necessary for the regime to exist because education in the regime is necessary. And I think that, I mean, that's something that our founders knew well um, in the United States. And, and I think that that's something that we, we kind of take for granted in the 21st century that, you know, we put someone in a sixth grade or eighth grade civics class, you know, that's enough, they'll get out and, and we'll be good thereafter as long as the economy is running well. And I think we're gonna soon realize that that very well may not be the case, that that education is so necessary to the preservation of the American regime cannot be set aside. Yeah, I think there's, there's two mistakes you can make here. So he talks about the spirit of the regime. You need to educate them in the spirit of the regime. And I think that you might take that as being kind of a rah-rah patriotism, right? You want to, you know, you know, yay us and kind of teach them this, this vision of your community that, that makes them uncritical of it. And that's actually not what he's talking about, right? He wants the spirit of the regime for, for a normal regime includes its, its dangers, its weak points, its tendency toward injustice, as well as its tendency toward justice, right? As we've seen his analysis of regimes all the way through this work, we've seen him talking about how each regime gets some of justice right, but misses other elements of it. And so to educate someone in the spirit of the regime is to appreciate both the good and the weaknesses of that regime and prepare them to combat those weaknesses. So you think about the example of a democracy, which he uses toward the end of his discussion, and the danger there is, is too much freedom, right? A, a kind of license, uh, a breakdown of any kind of restraint. 
And so to actually educate people in the spirit of a democracy is not to encourage them in that direction, say, hey, yeah, this is democracy, do whatever you want, but to say, no, this is democracy, so be self-governing. This is democracy, so be a person who applies the restraints to yourself that the laws won't apply to you. Right? That we're not going to rely on law to do that. We're going to rely on, on you seeking the good in community with others. And, and that's going to be a necessary part of that education for this democracy to succeed. Otherwise, its, it's inherent flaws and faults will overrun the regime and lead to its, its downfall or its destruction. So if you're listening to this and, and you want to move forward and on an affront that is contemporary, you could do no better than to pick up Wilfred McClay's Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story, and read through his history of the United States, uh, a history that ends with an epilogue in which he points out just what I think you've commented on, Matt, that really kind of captures that Aristotelian orientation to political education. McClay writes, this book is offered as a contribution to the making of American citizens. As such, it is a patriotic endeavor as well as a scholarly one, and it never loses sight of what there is to celebrate and cherish in the American achievement. That doesn't mean it is an uncritical celebration. The two things, celebration and criticism, are not necessarily enemies. Love is the foundation of the wisest criticism, and criticism is the essential partner of an honest and enduring love. We live in a country, let us hope, in which our flaws can always be openly discussed and where criticism and dissent can be regarded not as betrayal thought crimes, but as essential ingredients in the flourishing of our polity and our common life. Can you put it any better than that? No, no, <laughs> because that's the second problem, right? So the first problem I'm saying is, is the love without criticism. The second problem, which of course we find mostly on the political left is, is criticism without love, right? And so it's putting those two things together that, that educates um, young people and everybody else in the nature of the regime in such a way that it preserves the re regime and, and pushes it toward the best version of itself, uh, which is of course uh, central to Aristotle's teaching on regime preservation. All right, I think our crystal ball will take up some of the same, correct? That's right. So let's turn to the crystal ball. So uh, next Tuesday, we have President Biden's second State of the Union address. Uh, last year, when he gave his first, which was on his 100th day in office, April 28th, uh, he had a 53.1% approval rating and, of course, 42.1% disapproval. Uh, now, as he prepares to give the speech this year, those numbers have been essentially reversed, about 41.4% approval. This is the real clear politics average, 52.9% disapproving. And of course, with midterm elections coming soon, I kind of wonder what the president will try to do to turn around uh, his and his party's electoral fortunes. He's going to stay in kind of partisan mode, which he's been in largely during this last year, uh, or will he try to return to some of the um, language and, and, and feel of the 2020 presidential campaign. So what I want to do, Dave, is, is get your uh, predictions on, on three fronts here, three, three matters of, of, of concern, uh, issue areas that are likely to come up in that speech and, and ask you what you think he will have to say on those items. Okay, so the first one uh, is Russia and Ukraine. And of course, 
there may be more developments between now and then. Um, but what do you expect him to say? What's the message to the American people that you expect him to convey on that front? Well, I don't remember this movie from 1997, Wag the Dog, but I think it kind of um, came as a precursor to the West Wing approach to foreign policy, domestic policy, and all the rest in which the, the story behind the story is what's important. And if you can spin things the right way, then uh, you'll, you'll gain a political advantage. And of course, Aristotle just told us that this is not uh, good advice, uh, but it seems to be the advice that a lot of uh, brokers uh, in, in Washington, D.C. have taken up. And I, I think that's where he's going to go uh, on Russia and Ukraine. I think you're going to see a little bit of a wagging of the dog of uh, we can't let this stand, uh, that um, this goes against the fundamentals of the world community. Uh, and yet uh, it fails to realize the, the truth, the reality that's on the ground and you can wag the dog all you want, but if you're not in control, it doesn't really matter. And I think that that will that will not that 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 will be a, a, an attempt to gain control of a situation that in the next news cycle and the next uh, Russian movement will will show that there's really nothing that he can do. You can't you know call on the dogs of war if you're not really interested. Uh, in uh, fighting against whatever maneuvers Putin wants to do in that part of the world. I think the focus would be on the domestic political consequences. So we, we know on, on both the left and the right, there's a real disinterest in getting involved in foreign conflicts. And so I think there's going to be an emphasis on the expectation of success from various restrictions on the flow of capital and things of this sort you know, sanctions regime that's being put in place, and, and probably some discussion of the consequences for energy prices, things of this sort, that might be kind of the domestic fallout of this, an attempt to kind of manage that, that worry and expectation there. All right, how about on inflation? Yeah, I expect something like this. The, the American economy is strong, and we're building it back better. <laughs> You probably are not tuning in, uh, but you are tuning in to the fact that when you fill up your gas tank the next day, it's seventy-three dollars, uh, uh, and it's not doesn't feel uh, on your wallet that uh, it's strong and it's building back better. It doesn't feel that way when you're getting groceries that are twenty-five dollars more than they were, you know, last year, and it doesn't feel that way when you kind of look at the balance of what's in your a checking account. And um, you, you, yes, you may be getting two, 3% more than you were in wages last year, uh, but on balance, you're doing worse. Yeah, I think it's going to be a focus on supply chain problems, COVID, kind of temporary issues. No mention of the spending of the last few years, which is uh, by many accounts uh, a key contributor to inflation. But I think it's going to be the external, right? Government is the solution, not the problem. All right. Lastly, the issue of American democracy. Where do you think he goes there, Dave? Yeah, here I think he pivots with world events and says, you know, one of the things that we cherish about uh, our life is that uh, we are not led by dictators. Um, yes, we've had some within our midst who would want to be ruled by such types. Uh, but um, our mission uh, as a country uh, is to preserve democracy for the rest of the world. There'll be something kind of Wilsonian, you know, tied back to kind of attacking his political opponents at home. 
and pointing out their similarities to um, foreign dictators abroad. Yeah, I think there will be some underlying current of of Trump and Putin and and those kind of connections. But I think he's going to be careful not to go the route he was in the debate over the the, the voting bill and and you know, paint with such a broad brush that the average Republican conservative thinks, oh, he's he's calling me a racist. He's calling me a, a defender of segregation or a person who's against voting or something. I think he's going to kind of shift a little bit more to presidential campaign mode and try to be more inclusive in his language, even while maintaining the underlying critique of, of Trump and, and Trumpism. Yeah, we will see what happens on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, in the meantime, we thank you as always for listening to the show. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon.